Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. As someone said that they are sure Paul will have written first Legotians, second Legotians, up until tenth Legotians, because we now know they hear words. Another person said they are sure the letter would not have been delivered because the angel would have been stuck in traffic. <laughs> I'm talking about traffic in Lagos. Like all of us know how difficult that is. I was on the road yesterday, um, a journey that was supposed to take me about 15 to 20 minutes from somewhere else to my house, like really close. Took me about two hours. I know someone who, and that was Saturday night, okay? I know someone who walked, there were no, they could, because of traffic, they had to walk from this place back to their house, a couple of guys here in church. And so traffic can be really crazy. And so, you know, they say nature abhors a vacuum. Lagosian drivers are bought in vacuum. Anywhere we see space, like why, why is this space here? It can take an Okada, it can take Keke, it can take my small Hyundai, you know, let me just fit into it, into it. We hate to wait in Lagos. But someone else said something, that Paul will have written grace and peace to you, the church in Lagos, because I know say when I don't see Shege. <laughs> And it's true, we don't see Shege. Some of us remember that just in the course of the last two to three years, the prices of things have really increased. Sometimes more than 200%. At, in 2019, we could buy a 12.5 kg cylinder of gas for 2.5. Today, just three years later, it's almost 10k. 
I was reading a report that said inflation in Lagos, in Nigeria really, is more than 15.6%. I pray that it doesn't go higher than that. So things are hard. And we hate to wait. And so what some of us have done, and this is not a, this is not a moral statement about whether it is good or, or bad to jackpot, but what many of us have done is we jackpot. We don't want to wait for things to sort of get better. When everybody has gotten, when our leaders have gotten their senses back, we decide to leave, to go, want to escape the suffering that we are in. And in many ways, Paul actually doesn't need to write a letter to the church in Lagos because he's written some of his letters in the Bible. You see, the church in Thessalonica was a church that suffered hardship, like some of us are suffering hardship here in Lagos. Maybe theirs wasn't economic hardship, but there was a lot of spiritual hardship. In Acts chapter 17, Paul had just left the city of Philippi and he had gone to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. And in three weeks, verse 3 tells us, in three weeks he was there, revival broke out. People became Christians. Jews became Christians. Greeks became Christians. And it seemed like, wow, God was doing something amazing. This is going to be great. And then in verse 4, he says, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women became Christians. Verse 5. Other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some of the bad characters, hoodlums, basically, from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But they did not find them. So they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason welcomed them into his house. Do you see what's happening? Revival has been breaking out. But somewhere along the line, hardship happens, and they start kidnapping Christian leaders. And this church is falling into hardship. They are falling into difficulty. And so Paul writes this letter to them. And many of us, when we think about 1 Thessalonians, really, what we are thinking about is chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, the jackpot plan of God. To take all of us out from the hardship that we're experiencing into the great by and by, where everything is sweet and nothing bad is happening and there is no difficulty or there's no suffering. But Paul actually says, yes, we should wait for that promise. But actually, <laughs> there is a waiting that you should be doing. You see, there's a difference between waiting at the bus stop for your bus to come and pick you and waiting to write an exam. When you're waiting for your bus to come and pick you, you just stand at the bus stop and you're, when is this thing going to, when is this thing going to happen? But when you're waiting to write an exam, you are in the moment. No second can be wasted. You are checking past questions. You are discussing with other people that have done the exams ahead of you. You are asking for professional help. You are going for lessons. You are doing all of these things. You are waiting to write that exam that eventually see your promotion come about. But in the moment, you are very much in the moment. And Paul says, yes, wait. But ensure that as you are waiting, you are actually thriving as well. And so by God's grace, we'll be looking through the book of 1 Thessalonians over the next couple of weeks in this series that we've called Wait. And we're praying that God would expand our minds to not just think of the jackpot plan of God to take us out of the hardship of the world in which we are in, but the plan of God to cause us to thrive even in the place where we are in.
And so today I've titled this sermon, Becoming a Model Church. Because in many ways, the church in Thessalonica is a model church for us. How can we thrive in the midst of hardship? Paul doesn't write any word of rebuke to these guys. He's just giving them commendations and he's encouraging them. And God is as though saying to us, you guys, City Church Lagos, this can be who you, this, this is who you can become. And so we're going to be looking at the topic, becoming a model church, as we look at the three keys that Paul gives to this church. But before we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we want our souls to tell out of your greatness, to tell of your greatness. Lord, we ask that you'd help us in these moments as we gaze upon your word to really see you for who you are, to see you, Lord, for your kindness, your glory, your majesty, your awesomeness, so that our souls are captured and so that we can follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. As a good follower, I have to take my cup of water. The first key Paul presents is the origin of the model church. Can we say that together? The origin of the model church. If someone asks you the question, how does a church get created? How does a church come about? What would you say? Well, you could go the sociological route and say, oh, there are social needs that people have. People are social beings, and so we need to relate amongst ourselves, particularly in places like Lagos and in immigrant communities abroad, where settling into life is really difficult, and so we kind of need people who understand us, people who are like us, who sort of carry us on through. Or maybe there are young professionals who are aspiring to the top of their career, and there are other people in the congregation that can sort of mentor them, guide them, and lead them along. So there's the social need that we have. Or you could go the historical route and say, oh, well, the church really came about because in the 1800s, a couple of missionaries started coming to Nigeria and started evangelizing and, um, you know, just had this really, really powerful movement of God, and that was how the church came about. But then, particularly in the 90s, 80s and 90s, when things were really difficult in Nigeria, people started turning to God, and that was how revival broke out and the church came about. So you could go the historical route. Or you could go the organizational route and say, well, things are hard, though. We don't see Shege, and so people don't have jobs, and so we have the rise of pastorpreneurs. People who cannot do anything else. They don't have any skill sets, except to preach and to collect money. So that's how the church came about. But Paul actually says, no. All of these things are not how the church came about. There is another reason that the church came about. And as I was looking at this passage, it reminded me of a movie I watched with my wife late last year. Some of us may have seen the movie as well. It's a story about um, Venus and Serena Williams. Between the pair of them, they are one of the greatest tennis um, players ever, professional tennis players ever. um, Venus, the elder one, became professional at the age of 14. Between them, they have won more, um, they have won over 100 Grand Slam single titles. They have made like tons of money and they are just in their early 40s. But what many of us don't know actually is how their career came about. And so let's see just this little piece from the movie. Yes, what my game people told 
Don't be too scared to fly on the track. But yeah, when I was interested in my family, my life, how to dress, how to black people in the world do it. And I started to get obsessed with girls. catch it. He was pitching to coaches who he wanted to train his daughters. And what did he keep saying? I wrote a 78 page plan for these two girls before they were born. And now that plan says it is time for you to become our coach. And so no wonder many of us can remember the early days of Venus and Serena Williams. There was virtually no game that they played that their father wasn't somewhere on the margins holding up a placard encouraging his girls. There was no interview that he had, that they hardly had, that the father wasn't there as well. Why? Because he designed, he thought, he wrote down something about what these girls will become. And that is what Paul is saying here. He's saying the origin of the church is not some people's wise imaginations. The origin of the church is not something that happened in history. The origin of the church is not your social needs, as important as those things are. The origin of the church is God. Look at, look at verse 1. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be sure, when Paul says, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not trying to say, oh, the Holy Spirit really didn't have anything to do with it. Because we know in verse 5, he says that his gospel came by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying something here. He's underscoring the importance of the role of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the founding of the church. Paul is showing us that just as Richard Williams was intentional about the direction of the life of his kids and where he wanted them to go, it is the very same way that God the Father was intentional in creating the church. If you look through the Bible, everywhere in the Bible, we see God as the one who pursues, the one who comes after his people, the one who creates. Just even think about the creating, the question story. We were not the ones calling out to God, create us, make us. No, we didn't. He made us of his own accord. And then in Genesis 12, Abraham is doing his own thing. He's chilling, probably rearing his goats and cattle and going his own way. And we're told that God comes to Abraham and says, I will make you. A great nation. And that story continues on and on. And eventually the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And we are told in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and 30. That God himself is the one who has foreknown us. God is the one who has predestined us. And because of that he has called us. He has justified us. And he will yet glorify us. The church is God's plan. 
But he says also the Lord Jesus Christ because he wants us to see that actually the rulership of the church is, is in the hands of the Lord Jesus. You know, too often because we have become used to God, we, we just call Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes we even say Jesus Christ as though Christ is his surname and Jesus is his first name. But Paul is saying, no, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who rules his church. He's the one who governs his church. And that's why oftentimes in the New Testament, particularly after Jesus Christ ascended, the picture of Jesus that we see is one who is seated on the throne. He's not disturbed by what is going on in the world. He's not bothered by how things aren't working on as well because he's ruling and orchestrating and governing things to turn out in accordance with what he has designed. The church is God's plan. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 and 10, I love this so much. In the NLT, it says, and this is God's plan. Drake was late. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety, in its rich variety, in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, we talk about our politicians' vanity projects. Talk about things that they, you know, somebody just mounts a 10-story building in a village in the middle of nowhere just to say, I've arrived. Guess what? When God wanted to brag to the devil, what did he do? He created you. He created the church. He said, this is how I'm going to display my glory to the world. This is how I'm going to display my glory to the powers and forces of darkness. He says, the church is the one that God has called out to display his glory. But look at verse 1. He says, the church of the Thessalonians in God. It's as though he's saying this, is, this thing was inside God. This thing was God's brainchild. This thing was God carefully made. Friends, we live in the city of Lagos where there's a lot of creative thinking. And so we can look at churches or the church and say, oh, this is a great invention of people. But no, actually, the church is not a great invention of people. The church is God's brainchild. The church is God's plan. We live in a city and in a culture where there's a lot of individualism in the things that we do. And so we look at the Bible and we find these great and precious promises that God has made to me. But the truth actually is that oftentimes, many of the personal promises that we see in the Bible are within the context of the collective body of Christ. So take an example. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20. Go into all the world and make disciples. And as you go, I am with you until the end of the age. I say, wow, that's a great promise. God is with me. God is for me. God is with me all the time. Nothing can go wrong. But actually, that's a promise made to you within the context of the church. That there is no you outside of the collective people of God. God's plan is not just for you as an individual. God's plan is for his people collectively. And maybe some of us, because of the challenges that we've seen or the updates in technology, like now the metaverse is coming out and we don't really need to, you know, I don't really need to be here with you guys. You guys are, you are privileged to have my presence. 
actually, no, the church is not outdated. The church is not outdated. Technology has nothing on the church. When we gather here every Sunday, we are like jewels in a crown. God displaying his worth, his splendor to the world. Well, you know, this also means that actually, because the church is God's plan, God determines the metrics of the success of the church. And this is really important because we love big things. There's a guy I, won't, I can never forget and I will never forgive him. I'm joking. I will never forgive him because when this church was starting, myself and my wife had just joined the church and so we went to see um, a family relative. And the guy said, Oh, um, Emmanuel, Pelumi, Baba. So what church do you guys go? So we mentioned the name of the church. First of all, the name is Web City Church. Like who names that church City Church? Ask Pastor Femi. But secondly, he then asked, eh, hey, really? Where? Lucky? Oh, that sounds fresh. How many are you guys? <laughs> you know, you know how you know somebody came for somebody was going somewhere else, but he sort of walked in through the door, you know, and oh, and they sat down for five minutes. Ah, he came. He came, that sort of thing. And so I can't remember, I think we're about 40 something. I just added a few more numbers, you know. And the guy was like, ah, that is an Abele church now. <laughs> Abele church in Yoruba means that is an under, like, like is a, is a shanty church, or is a church in a shed, that sort of thing. Why? First of all, first of all, like, do you even have to say it out loud? Can't you just, can't you just keep it in your head, in your mind? But secondly, actually, it is what metrics are we using to determine the success of the church? If Jesus is the one who founded his church, then it is his own metrics that we use to determine the success of the church. And for some of us, a good church is a church that has strong theology, good doctrine. Like these people don't compromise. But actually, Jesus writes to a church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, where they have strong theology and good doctrine, and he says, you guys have neglected your first law. Like, everybody thinks you guys are great and all that, but actually, you guys are nothing in my sight. Oh, okay, so what should we be? We should be a church where there's love, resources, where we are really generous, where there's wealth, and people are generous with their stuff, and they see poor people, or people who are struggling, and they just give out stuff, and they do a lot of charitable things, and they help people around. Guess what? Jesus writes to another church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 to 18, and he says, you guys think you are rich, but actually you are poor. You guys think you have clothes, but actually you are naked. Buy from me. What am I saying? Jesus made the church. God determined the church, and so God determines the metrics of the success of the church. But maybe you are not a Christian here, and so you are like, yeah, this is exactly why I don't do this church thing, because you guys are just uptight and all that. You guys think you are special. But actually, have you ever considered that the church is the only institution in the world where your very disqualification is what qualifies you to be a member of it? And where your very achievements don't earn you a gold member status in the organization? All of our achievements in the church are actually not our achievements. They are achievements on the back of someone else. But maybe some of us have been hurt by churches, and, and that is a true thing. You've gone to a church and you told someone something in confidence and next thing you heard was the pastor saying it on stage. Or 
maybe someone backstabbed you and you thought, like this person is my brother and sister in Christ. It was wrong what they did. But the truth, friends, is that the church is not a museum. The church is a hospital. We don't say we have come to look at the perfect specimens of all that God has created in church. Actually, in the church, we are broken people in the church. So that actually means you are welcome. You are meant to be part of us because you are a broken person as well. But what that means is that in the church, we have some people in accident and emergency. We have some people in the operating theater of God. We have some people in the recovery room. We have some people in the world. Some people are impatient. They are there constantly with drip and oxygen. They, they need help. And maybe some of us, we are outpatients. We have recovered. And so all we just do is we come for our regular checkups. But you see, all of us are broken people in need of God's help. The church is not a museum. The church is a hospital. And Jesus is our doctor. And Jesus is the one governing our healing and governing our restoration. The church... Is God's plan. I have a friend who went to Computer Village while we were sitting in university to buy a phone. <laughs> you already know how this story ends. So the guy goes to Computer Village to buy a phone. First of all, the phone is a lot cheaper than what the phone would have cost. And so the guy was like, wow, I have a great deal. I have a good deal. My friend buys the phone and he's like, they actually open up the phone for him. They show him the SIM and all of the things and all that. And so my friend takes the phone and he's walking, you know, and so he gets to a point outside the gate. So let me even just put in my SIM card inside this thing. So the guy opens his phone to put in his SIM card. And lo and behold, brothers and sisters, children of God, <laughs> the guy finds Fufu inside. How did, how did the phone that was working just now now become fufu? I don't know. But the guy then goes back and then tries to find people and he doesn't find them again. The guy cries, he weeps. But let me tell you what my friend did not do. My friend did not say because I was scammed on getting a good phone. I'm not going to use a phone ever. What did he do? He just made sure that the next time he was buying a phone, he bought it from an authentic place. There are scam churches around. There are bad people around. But the church is God's idea. And this is what Paul is saying to these guys. Like, you guys, you are not our own working because we were great, because we had one successful missionary endeavor at some point in time. This is God's idea. You are God's idea. The beauty we see here, the different hairstyles, some crazy, some conservative, the different dressings, all of those things, it is God's plan. We are God's plan. We are God's idea. But Paul gives us another key. He says that's the origin of the church. But what's the means of the model church? And so he says, if we look at verse 2 and verse 1, he mentions two things here. Complementary partnerships and prayer. Complementary partnerships and prayer. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And already without going ahead, we see that there's a difference in gifting because if you know the story of the Bible well, Paul was an apostle. These other guys weren't. We see that there's a difference in expertise. Timothy was the one, if you read as we go further along, you see, Timothy was the one they were sending to different places, like, guy, go on, you know, sort of like Tommy, the way we sent Tommy around, that sort of thing. 
There was a difference in experience. Paul and Silas were much more advanced. The previous chapter, Paul and Silas were the ones, they were locked up in a place and they just started singing and doors started opening. Crazy stuff. And it is as though the Bible wants us to see that the way God rules his church is by calling different people to do different things in his household. In Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul is writing to Titus and he says, I want you to appoint elders in every town that you go along. He's writing to the church in Ephesians, in, in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4 verse 11, he says that there are different gifts that God has given to the church. And so one of the ways in which God actually rules his church or causes to bring about his mission is by the gifts of leaders in the church. But if I can just expand it a little bit. I think what Paul is showing us here, more than just leadership, is to say that ministry cannot be done by any one person. Just even think about if as Femi was our worship coordinator, our drummer, our... I'm very sure we'll have buried him two years ago. It is impossible. Ministry cannot be done by any one person. If you read Romans chapter 16, it reads, it reads like a hall of fame of who's who in Paul's life, who was helping his ministry. He calls one, he says, I write to Rufus, and help me thank his mother, who was like a mother to me. He mentions men and women who helped him. He mentions one guy. The guy doesn't, he doesn't even have anything behind his name. He says, Quartus, a brother. That's all the guy was. And yet Paul is calling our attention to see that ministry, the church, cannot be done by any one person. But then he goes on to say, it is the church of the Thessalonians. In other words, the church is not a spectator event. We are not the crowd in a stadium looking at the starting 11 that are running up and down. The rest of us are just cheering on and not doing anything and just wearing the jersey that we paid for to pay them. No, no, no. The church is not a spectator event. The church is a participator event. All of us are called to be in the ring together, bringing down God's purposes and God's mission. So can I ask you, maybe you've been coming to church and helping us warm our seats. We are very happy about that. Thank you so much. But God is also calling you to serve in the church. Are there places where, you know, there are a couple of needs and all of that that you can actually step in and fill the void? Maybe some of us have been coming to church and we, you know, we're just still observing. Can I ask you to join a gospel community? Put it in your schedule. Put in your plan. There are actually, now we hear a little bit more about that as, as, the, as the service goes on. There are actually virtual options. Like, literally, all you need to do is just click a button, like literally that is all you need to do, and join. Maybe some of us have, like you love City Church, you've been coming. Or maybe the next step, and you've been in a GC, you've been served, but maybe the next step for you is to participate in membership, to say, I'm actually in what God has for this church. I'm actually in, in seeing God's mission fulfilled through City Church. The church is not a spectator event. The church is a participator event. And you see, friends, Jesus is building his church and he's doing it through little outposts of believers scattered all across the city of Lagos. He's doing it through complementary partnerships. But secondly, Paul says, one more thing you guys shouldn't forget is prayer. And so in verse 2, he says, we always thank God. 
We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And what do we see here? Paul is talking about the regularity of his prayers, but also the focus of it. The regularity of his prayers, but also the focus of it. Look at, he says, we always and we continually mention you in our prayers. But then he's not just praying for himself. He's praying for the other guys. And this is interesting because Paul knows that it is as though Paul is saying it is not sufficient to have good theology, and these guys had good theology. It's not sufficient to have gifted leaders, and these guys had gifted leaders. It is not sufficient to have a good reputation and be doing things in the name of Christ and in the gospel by the Holy Spirit power, and all of these people had these things. Paul is basically saying that there are things that you will never see accomplished in your life and in your church if you do not call out to God in prayer. And so here we see in chapter 1, verse 2, that he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving for them. But in chapter 3, verse 11 to 14, we see that he's calling out for more power from God for them. Can I suggest, friends, that part of the reason why we don't pray is because we feel self-sufficient. We feel that all we just need is to know the three keys to living a life of holiness and wealth and prosperity and happiness and once you just put those three keys into your door, everything else, your car will start driving automatically. Everything else is going to work out for you. No. Paul is saying you will not see God move until you call out to him in prayer. And so I like the way someone puts it. He says, prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. Prayer visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently fated by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. Prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. Prayer is saying, God, thank you for all that you have done, but we even want more. Thank you for what I see in my own life, but we even want more. Thank you for all the things that you have said, but we even want more. It is a defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. And so you see, our prayers are filled to the extent by which we are meditating on the word of God. Some of you may have heard this quote from a preacher of a previous century named Charles Spurgeon. And he says, son, people always ask, which is more important, praying or reading the Bible? And he says, I always ask, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? And you see, part of the problems why our prayers don't have the effect that they have, someone said, is because we close our Bibles and we pray. But actually, as we see in the quote and as we see in Paul's life, prayer is God, you have said this, bring it to pass. And you are there petitioning God and asking God and asking for more of God and calling out for God more and more and saying, God, do this, God, do this, God, do more of what you have promised. We will not see the Spirit of God move. We will not see the empowerment of God as we wait upon him if we are not constantly calling out to him in prayer. But some of you know that, man, prayer is really hard. It's difficult. And every time, you know, someone said, if you want to make a Christian feel guilty, just ask them, how are you doing your prayer life? Everybody just knows that. It's, it's hard. And so some of you, what you've decided is at the end of today, what you're going to do is go back home and then try harder. Why do you think that will work? 
Many of us know here that actually that we don't have the self-discipline to lose weight or exercise. So what do we do? We join a gym. If we know that joining a gym will help us achieve our private goal, why do you think personal prayer is the only way you can go in your prayers personally? And so maybe just have an appointment with friends. Every time you guys hang out during the week, just make sure, don't let it be awkward or anything, just, can we just pray now? You have an appointment with someone and you guys have talked about stuff, can we just pray now? Can we just call out to God? Pray with your friends. But maybe another thing some of us can do is something I, I started doing recently. Just set an alarm on your, on your phone or your smartwatch or something, and it rings at a specific time of the day. You may be busy at work, so you may not be able to do it, but here's what will happen. If you don't set a reminder, actually, chances are that you will not even remember. And so, yes, you may set a reminder and forget. Yes, who cares? Pray the next time you remember. And you see, what you are doing is you are constantly reorienting your mind to God and you are saying, God, I want the air of what is to come into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. You are asking for more of God. Some of us are constantly just scrolling through Instagram and we are seeing news. Hey, cool, again, in Mali, like we are praying about this morning. Hey, Nigeria, now, wow, all these prices and stuff. Why can't you turn your news feed into prayer points? And as you are going through stuff and something happens, I feel like, hey, man, this is really bad. Yes, tap to share, but also tap to pray. And you say, God, this, this thing is serious. Intervene, God. I know this person. I don't know this person. But you, you see what you have done? You have turned that thing that you have just seen in the moment into a prayer point. And so you have begun to pray. But then also, as a church, we have set aside times of prayer. Tomorrow morning, Mondays at 6.30, we gather together to pray just for about 30 minutes and just ask God for the week and say, God, help us. And some of us have prayer points. God, my job. God, my, my kids. God, I have someone who is ill. You bring all of those things there. And what happens as you pray with all other believers, your own faith is strengthened, your prayer life is strengthened as well, and God does stuff. Next week, Wednesday, we're having a virtual prayer meeting, all of the church on Zoom. Why don't you join in that? And you see, what you're doing is you're like somebody when they're trying to cook food, cook jollof rice. Why do we like that firewood smell? It's because different sticks have been brought together and they have struck a match and that is how the fire was able to start. When we gather together and we pray, God is doing something collectively, but God is also doing something personally in our own life. And Paul is saying, yes, the origin of the church is important, but you will not see what God has promised if you are not engaged in prayer and complementary relationships in the church. But lastly, what will happen if you do these things? What are the results of the model church? I'll see in verse 3, he says, these three things will happen. A work of faith, a labor of love, and endurance inspired by hope. A work of faith, a labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. You see, when he talks about work of faith, he's saying there basically that these guys weren't just involved in saying things with their mouth. 
These people weren't just the kind of believers who would just talk about, oh, how great God is and how great God's people and how great God's plan is. Actually, they were doing stuff with it. Their faith in God was motivating them and propelling them to do certain things in their lives in the present. Friends, can I be honest with you that your works don't earn you a standing before God. Your works don't earn you acceptance before God, but you show that you have been accepted by God by the things that you do. Let's stop all this workless Christianity where all that we just do is talk about what Jesus has done for us and there is no proof, no evidence in our lives at all. Paul says that because of these things, we've seen the work that has come from your faith. But he says also that there is labor prompted by love. Labor prompted by love. I like the way one pastor described it. He says labor here points to sacrificial exertions that go beyond ordinary works. In other words, it's not convenient. In other words, people are going to look at you and say, this person is mad and has gone insane. Have you ever met somebody in love before? <laughs> like, things they do 60% of the time is madness. There was a time I had just moved, well, on my... It's hard to tell when I exactly moved to Lagos, but one of the times I was trying to move to Lagos, I was living in Arepo. If you don't know where that is, that is why you don't know where that is. <laughs> Arepo is somewhere in Ogo State, okay? It's close to Redemption Camp. And so my wife was living in Ojodu, beggar, and she was working in Lagos Island. So, crazy me. You love me. What would I do? I'll leave Arepo. She resumes at, she's supposed to resume at 8 o'clock, right? But you know, to beat Third Milan Bridge traffic, you have to sort of go like two hours at least, no, two and a half hours before that. You have to be on Third Mainland Bridge two and a half hours before that. So what would I do? I will leave Arepo at 4.30 in the morning, which means I was awake at like 3.45. I will leave Arepo at 4.30 in the morning. I will pick her up at Ojodu. Then I will go and drop her in Lagos Island. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It's actually not yet bad. Then I will wait with her. So if she's ready to go to the office, then I'll drive back with an empty car. I think back on it like this is, this is stupidity. This is madness. I know another guy in this church who is sitting in that corner. When he started, when he had just gotten married, his break time was like one hour. One hour, what did he do? He would rush back home check his wife. Is she okay? Is she fine? I hope she has not broken her leg. And then he will come back, come back to do his work. Why? It was labor, but it was they, 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 as it wasn't hard to do. It was not hard. Why? We were in love. And that's what Paul is saying here, that when you love God, your love for God will make you love God's people, and that will produce labor in your life. People will think that you are mad and you are silly and you are insane. And yes, maybe you are, but who cares? I'm in love. What would happen in this church if we were so madly in love with God and so madly in love with his people and we started doing labor for one another? I don't know exactly what that labor will look like, but friends, this is what I, this is what I can tell you, that our faith will go out everywhere. 
They'll say, oh, wow, those guys in city church, men, yes, maybe their theology is on point. Maybe their creativity is on point. Their service, their music, everything is great. But guess what? There is a Lord that has propelled and motivated them and has changed everything about them. But it says also that there is an endurance inspired by hope. An endurance inspired by hope. I see here, when we hear the word endurance, endurance reeks of sweat. It talks about the gym. I hate going to the gym. But what motivates us to go to the gym is the hope of what can be. It's the hope that by sweating on this machine for one hour, all these extra fats around my belly can disappear and one pack can become six packs. Your endurance is motivated by hope. And when we hear hope, you know, as Nigerians, we know there was hope 93. Actually, <laughs> Hope, hope, may not, hope, hope may not happen. Hope may not materialize. Is that what the Bible is talking about here? No. When the Bible uses the word hope, the Bible is talking about an assurance of what will happen. It is not what may happen. It is what, it's not what, what could possibly happen if you do a little bit more things. It is an assurance of what will happen. A work produced by faith. Labor prompted by love. Endurance inspired by hope. Jesus was still prompted by law. And we are told in Romans chapter 5 that this is how God's love was made manifest, that Christ died for us while we were in our sins. His labor was prompted by law. But Jesus also went to the cross, and actually at the point where Jesus went to the cross, maybe there were 12 disciples, and then maybe only a handful of other people who believed him. How did he know that this would not have been in vain? How did he know that his endurance would actually lead to something? He was prompted by hope. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to, verse 9 to 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow down, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see? Jesus Christ did the works of love, his of faith, his labor was prompted by love, and yet his endurance was motivated by hope. And that is how we know that the results will happen. You see, it's not just something for the past. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus Christ says, standing there, and he's talking to Peter, and Peter has just answered this question, and Jesus Christ looks at him, and he looks at you, and, and he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. On this rock, not on city church's greatness, on this rock, not prominence on this rock, not on our own influence and power, on this rock, not on all the things that we're able to do, on this rock, not on our giftedness, on this rock, namely his own power, on this rock, namely his own truth, on this rock, namely his own works of faith, on this rock, his labor of love, on this rock, his endurance inspired by hope, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, friends. Jesus is building his church and we have been called to participate in it. Thank you for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos